Hi, this is Steve Thompson, and today I want to depart from our devotional format a little, so please forgive me, but I really think that having a little bit of information at this point will help us navigate this material with more sensitivity to what God is up to. So I'm going to take some time here up front before jumping into the text to set this up. We just finished hearing the Ten Commandments, which are broad stroke principles that were never intended to be enforced or judged by human courts. In my mind, the Ten Commandments would be closer in nature to, say, our U.S. Constitution, laying the philosophical groundwork for the law code that we're about to get into. So for the next four chapters in Exodus, we're going to be listening to that law code that God was establishing for this fledgling new nation. But I have to address a little bias that I suspect we all have, at least I know I do, because the New Testament, or more properly, the New Covenant, is a new agreement that God entered into with all humans based on Jesus, his death and his resurrection, and what that entails for us. And so now this new covenant that we are all now living under has not at all discarded or superseded or done away with the old covenant the one that we're just now studying in Exodus. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets so that now by living under the new law written on our hearts, the new law of the Spirit, the new law of love, we are in fact fulfilling or meeting all of the requirements of the old law and then some. So in other words, there's still a great deal of relevance in this law, in the Old Covenant for us. However, <laughs> that relevance is really difficult to get at for a variety of reasons. And one reason that comes quickly to my mind is that the New Testament on the whole refers back to the law and the Old Covenant in largely negative terms. But because of people's failure to live up to it and because of the negative consequences that have come, come about because of disobedience. So we tend to have a bias of anti-law and our filter is that we see this whole thing as rather barbaric and unseemly, antiquated, and thankfully no longer relevant. But that's just not the case. And because I can't adequately explain why that's not the case right now, I want to ask all of us to consider accepting at face value that the law was an amazing gift to these people at this particular point in time and history, and especially at this particular point in their lives and in their development as a people group. This was a beautiful thing that they valued and treasured as sacred when they were doing it right. It only became a burden and a curse when transgressed, 
when they ignored it and when we ignore it. And so it would do us good to give these laws the benefit of the doubt because they did. One other bias we have is that probably because we tend to throw out the old law, uh, air quotes around that, as irrelevant to us, we view this section and really the rest of the book as we get into the extensive details of building the tabernacle, we tend to view this as a giant bummer of a break in the action instead of a narrative that's easy to follow and somewhat easy to relate to it's a bunch of rules that just don't make a lot of sense to us but not only can we value it because they valued it we also can recognize that the narrative that we so enjoy actually is just the vital groundwork leading to the climax of these intensely practical law codes. I don't, I don't think we'll emotionally connect with it as the climax of the story because it's just too foreign to us. But we must at least intellectually recognize that exactly half the book, the second half, the climax and conclusion of this book is exactly that. So it's special. It's unique. It was important to them, and so whether we can completely comprehend it or not, it's vital and foundational for us as well. Here are two things that I'm blown away with while still feeling like I'm utterly ignorant of exactly how and why these laws are good or relevant to me. So here's the two things. One, I believe God had to wade through far more garbage and depravity than we recognize in order to bring us good news and redemption to the extent that he wants to bring us. We just don't understand the depth of human failure and our human capacity for opposing God. The second thing, the reason this is so foreign to us is because Jesus changed everything. The things we value now, now, even the things that atheists value as morally right or wrong now, would be absolutely incomprehensible without Jesus' life and death in history. He literally changed everything. And the grid and the bias that we look back on, on before Jesus' history can only be rational through the understanding that Jesus' values and ethic and what he did has brought us to this place that we can even have that lens. Hopefully that, that makes sense. But that's probably entirely too long of a preamble. Let's jump into the text, Exodus chapter 1, or sorry, Exodus 21, the first 11 verses. These are the regulations you must present to Israel. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he may serve for no more than six years. Set him free in the seventh year, and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. 
If he was single when he became your slave, he shall leave single. But if he was married before he became a slave, then his wife must be freed with him. If his master gave him a wife while he was a slave and they had sons or daughters, then only the man will be free in the seventh year. But his wife and children will still belong to his master. But the slave may declare, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I don't want to go free. If he does this, his master must present him before God. Then his master must take him to the door or doorpost and publicly pierce his ear with an awl. After that, the slave will serve his master for life. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she will not be freed at the end of six years as the men are. If she does not satisfy her owner, he must allow her to be bought back again. But he is not allowed to sell her to foreigners, since he is the one who broke the contract with her. But if the slave's owner arranges for her to marry his son, he may no longer treat her as a slave, but as a daughter. If a man who has married a slave wife takes another wife for himself, he must not neglect the rights of the first wife to food, clothing, and sexual intimacy. If he fails in any of these three obligations, she may leave as a free woman without making any payment. And so we begin the Law of Moses by addressing the topic of slavery. Ironically, this ragtag band of slaves needs to be instructed on how they will be expected to have and treat slaves. What happens when the slave becomes the master? My modern sensibilities are crying out right now. Why not just abolish slavery? My answer? I don't know. And honestly, these kinds of passages are why so many just disregard and, and, and dispose of the Old Testament altogether. But here's what I do know, and I know it precisely because of how God revealed himself in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, in the Exodus. Here's the first one. Well, this first one isn't related to the Old Testament, but it it informs how we view it. One, we have an extremely distorted view of slavery because of one of our nation's biggest sins, if not the biggest, is the absolutely horrible, degrading, dehumanizing, brutal slave trade, legalized human trafficking, bathed in the blessing of the church. Somehow, we need to try and understand how slavery operated in that culture, in that day and age of the Exodus. Not that it was right or good, but it, it was, but that it was very different from the slavery of our more recent history. Here's the second thing I know. These laws regarding slavery 
were designed to give and protect rights of a class of people that usually had none. This wasn't actually unique to the Law of Moses. Many other law codes of that time did the same, but none to the degree that the Hebrews did. Here's the third thing. These laws also preserved the sanctity of all human life precisely because they were rooted in God's design and value of human life. When this law is retaught 40 years later in the book of Deuteronomy, here's what we find. If slaves should escape from their masters and take refuge with you, you must not hand them over to their masters. Let them live among you in any town they choose and do not oppress them. This was absolutely unique among all the law codes of that time. Slaves could choose freedom at any time, and the responsibility of anyone harboring a slave was not to the master, but to the slave. God says, take care of them. So, one more glimpse at God's heart then regarding this issue is found in the book of Job, which for us comes much later in the collection of the books of the Old Testament, but in terms of chronological history, could have easily been written long before the time of Moses. Job is defending himself from what he perceives as God's judgment on him. And here's his defense. Here's his self-defense. If I've been unfair to my male or female servants or slaves when they brought their complaints to me, how could I face God? What could I say when he questioned me? In other words, I'd be guilty. For God created both me and my servants. He created us both in the womb. I don't know why God didn't just abolish the practice of slavery because of how the Jewish people were enslaved and because I'm sure God was perfectly aware of how inhumane and evil slavery would be practiced in other times and places, especially our own colonial period of time. But what I can be certain of is God's heart and insistence that anything, any individual thought or action, any collective or institutional value or activity that dehumanizes people is the antithesis of God's will. Our God is a God of life, new life, abundant life. So, if there's a question in here for me and you today, it's this. Where are we devaluing life? Where are we dehumanizing a person, somebody around us? Or where are we complicit in the ongoing evil of dehumanization by, not either, by either not doing anything at all or by a lifestyle that's even built on unseen, unheard, dehumanized, and marginalized people? That question is one that 
I need to go and think on for a while. And I'm hoping you might engage with it for a while too. So I'm just going to sign off with this really simple prayer. Lord, right now, wherever any of us are, would you please speak to our minds and our hearts? Help us to see where are we devaluing life? Where are we dehumanizing someone, someone that you love and care about? Or where are we complicit in the ongoing evil of dehumanization by either not doing anything or by a lifestyle that's built on unseen, unheard, dehumanized, and marginalized people? Lord, open our eyes. Amen.